This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't you understand? It doesn't have to be like this. You have to help. It's gotten out of control. It's too big. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure, go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Hey, Merry Christmas, Kala Kristulina, and uh, Happy Hanukkah. Hope you're all feeling the warm glow of the holiday season. I'm feeling the warm glow, but that's because I'm in Los Angeles tonight, uh, getting ready uh, tomorrow morning to head out in, into the Los Angeles area, San Diego, finally on up to Palo Alto with my uh, um, a TV partner, Jay Murray, from Film One, as we uh, embark on Season 3. I shouldn't say embark. We've been working on Season 3 of the television program for quite some time, um, but um, uh, there will be an official announcement soon, I guarantee it, as to when you're finally going to be able to see uh, Season 3. But we're, uh, we've got some exciting episodes for you. Uh, tomorrow uh, I'll be interviewing a gentleman who's written a new book about the murder of Marilyn Monroe, and then I'm heading on down to Thousand Oaks to interview G. Edward Griffin about Agenda 21 and the Bilderbergs, and also Dr. Roger Lear uh, about alien implants uh, before heading down to San Diego, where I'll um, hook up with Jim Morrison's brother-in-law, the late Jim Morrison's brother-in-law, Alan Graham, and we'll, uh, we'll produce an episode, or we are producing an episode on whether Jim may have faked his own death, uh, and a whole lot more coming your way on Season 3 of The Conspiracy Show. Wait for an announcement on this show and on the website, theconspiracyshow.com. Uh, next week, quick note, uh, I'll be still in Los Angeles, so Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network sitting in the air chair with an exciting holiday edition of The Conspiracy Show. Uh, he's got some interesting things on tap, including an interview with Nigel Kerner from Oxford, England, who suspects that the star of Bethlehem may have, in fact, been a UFO. So hope you'll stay tuned for that next week on The Conspiracy Show. In the meantime, right now, we're going to learn about an incendiary new film, revolutionary film. Huffington Post called it. Oliver Stone is raving about it. It's the director, directorial debut for this uh, filmmaker, Patria Patrick. The film is called The American Empire, an act of collective madness. It's an indictment of um, the, uh, the, the American Empire, the, the economic system, the Federal Reserve, the foreign policy. Um, she calls it, um, America, uh, a clandestine dictatorship. Patria Patrick is based in Los Angeles. She studied filmmaking at California State University, Northridge. She made the, the short film Street 16 in 2005 and worked as a film editor with credits including James Dean Forever Young, The Dead Undead, and again, American Empire, her feature debut 
as a de- uh, director, Patria Patrick. Well, I am doing great, Richard, and uh, nice to hear from you. Uh, same here. On your show. Thank you, and thanks for joining me. Thanks for taking the time. Five years it took you uh, to, to make uh, American Empire a collective, an, a collective act of madness. You, you traveled the country five years. Tell me about that journey. Well, it was um, pretty exciting because, you know, we uh, wanted to put this film together, and uh, it's a big subject matter, and I think that the hardest thing was to figure where to start. And so getting some key uh, interviews was uh, really the basis of the travel, so going around and, and meeting great people like Edward uh, G. Griffin and Tarek Alley, uh, Von Donna Shiva, John Perkins, um, so you know David Corton, and these people do have so much to say. And really, as uh, we started to look and you know, just put the pieces of the puzzle together, I, I really, I, I knew that was the intent of the film. That that was the thing before I even started on the journey. Is that I, I, I am a filmmaker, and I had not seen that some of the other filmmakers, these great filmmakers with actual access to uh, funding, hadn't made a film like this. And I thought, well, I'm just going to do it. I'll just go ahead and I put my best foot forward and got my team together and went out on that journey. And uh, still, I, I, you know, I'm so um, surprised that no one has really connected the, the dots with a film and that I'm the one to do it. So I will push the film as much as I can just because there is no other film out there that's doing this. And it's so incredibly important that we understand how it all connects and that um, you know it, it it isn't a mystery, but it it seems like a mystery right now, and it 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 isn't a like it's some secretive type thing, but it is all very private. And so you know we're not privy as people to a lot of this information, and so it was so refreshing to put it into a film where people can just walk away and feel like they understand it in, in some simple form, and then they can go on and do more research to, to the areas they're interested in or that um, they feel they need some more information on. So it's pretty fantastic that, yes, yeah, somebody else did the work for you in a lot of ways, but I still do want people to come in and participate, and um, I, I think they'll be invited to do that. I think they'll be interested in that. There are so many interesting things that have transpired and that the film talks about that it's just it's fascinating information yeah um, let's delve into some of those that you mentioned john perkins who's uh, i've had him on, on on my radio program a few times uh, uh an economic uh, confessions of an economic hitman this is a you know a, a real whistleblower uh who worked i believe for the imf and the world um uh, perhaps the world bank but but, but and ed griffin of course um who we all uh, know from his seminal work um, the Creature from Jekyll Island, World Without Cancer. Uh, but let's connect some of those dots. I mean, for those, let's imagine that there may be someone listening tonight who is uh, living the the life of ignorant bliss and gets a good sleep uh, at night. And uh, I think, as Woody Allen said, their values are sort of God and carpeting. So what uh, what would you tell that person is going on in America right now? Well, our whole economy since the, the making, the founding of the Federal Reserve, 
has turned into a debt-based society. So our the way that our, our interest rates are set up, the way that the inflation is set up, puts us into um, a debt-based society. Also, and it's not just, you know, it's like the people who have the money are uh, loaning it out, and the people who are making the money are loaning it out to these big institutions that are doing, you know, worldwide projects, the World Bank and and the IMF, and it's not like you and I are able to go and get some huge loan for billions of dollars like this. So it keeps a very uh, certain group in power, and this becomes very dangerous. Our country started in an effort to get away from this empire and um, having, you know, a certain class rule. And now we've become an empire, and we are back in that same situation again, Richard. And so this is devastating to to not know it. So the people that don't, you know, we walk around and we think, oh, well, I, I can go buy food at the market and I have a job and, you know, I can, my kids are in school and things are kind of okay, pretty okay. But we're just moments from having that could be taken away from us. And it's also, we're just at this point where people are making, um, you know, us, it, because it's a debt-based society, they're making sort of money off off us. And it's all uh, it, very difficult now for people. Their houses are being foreclosed upon and uh, prices and food are rising. Who's controlling that? And I don't think people are knowing to ask these questions, what the right questions are. And I think once you know what the right question is, then you can start looking for the answers. You see the answers everywhere. You mentioned the Federal Reserve, and uh, it's a complex issue when you're talking about monetary policy and, and who, who, who prints the money and so forth, and how, what is money, the very nature of money. It's a, it's a fundamental issue. Unfortunately, it's not one of those campaign issues that's given to, uh, you know, 15-second sound bites. And so we have someone out there like a Ron Paul who's been uh, out on the hustings for, I, I believe this was his third presidential uh, campaign, uh, seems to get an incredible... Uh, grassroots support gets uh, you know set records for for funding and yet is continuously uh, ignored ridiculed by the mainstream uh, the corporate media uh, in in one instance i believe uh, he, you know he placed second i think in nevada in the primary and wasn't even mentioned uh, in any of the newscasts they skipped over second place and talked about first and third and so forth what is that what is what is going on in the with the the democratic process in the United States, well, it's really become a, a situation where we really don't have any say because the bottom line is that the corporations are calling the shots. So we think we have democracy here, but the scariest thing is that the only products you actually have available are products that they have in their box stores. Now, that's not what our country's ideals were built upon, um, actually, when we were a republic. It, you know, there were so many different people uh, making goods and services, and you mentioned money. What is real money? Well, money, you know, we don't eat money. At the end of the day, it's money is good for what resources and what services it can bring us. Actually, real wealth are the resources of our country. 
and those have been slowly taken away. And we, the people, don't really have anything to do with the resource. It's all in hands of people that are you know, in little, in big rooms making big decisions that affect our lives. And once we realize this, we as people can do something about it, and we as people need to because time is short, Richard. And this is the thing is that we do have to get this film out there so people can get this information. It's just, it's critical. And um, if time is this short and, you know, we need to grasp and connect these dots in a very uh, short moment here so we can move forward and make some kind of grasp at getting our country back to where uh, we aren't a debt-based society and that we um, actually are growing food here in our country, which is a whole big subject in itself. And this keeps us, as you know, what John Perkins talks about, the economic slaves and all. We, uh, you know, if we're not doing things in our country that is making it a strong independent country like it once was then we are you know we're not sustainable anymore and now that that puts us in the most dangerous situation we've ever been in in this country and uh, you know we I, I don't hear anybody addressing this the mainstream media what you mentioned no one's talking about these issues except a few small smart groups that um People maybe you've interviewed. I just, I just, in fact, uh, recently interviewed Mickey Huff, the director of Project Censored, and we talked. We ran down sort of some of you know the annual list of most censored stories of 2012, and uh, one of them, of course, was the um, uh, the emerging U.S. police state and uh, uh, how the this one, uh, you know, left me gobsmacked. I mean, I, I, I've, 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 I've sort of known that it was out there, but. But when I read the actual article, it just really uh, hit home that the fact that the FBI is responsible for most of the terrorist plots inside the United States, all of these things pointing to me, uh, point to, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is that it's a war. Uh, it's not a war on terror. It's a war against us. We are the enemy. You and I and the middle class and the lower class. Well, and, and this is what is totally terrifying, and it's coming in ways, Richard, that we don't even think. Okay, so we think, oh, well, gee, we're, you know, nobody's shooting bombs over here, so I guess we're safe. But, no, if we don't have our food growing here, and we don't, you know, if you fly over the United States, it does look like we are growing a lot of stuff, but it's all a monoculture system, which is devastating to our country it is the dirt is dead dirt we are we are setting ourselves up with this monoculture system to be controlled and uh, fed what they want to feed you and this is not healthy food the food is is because there's nothing in the soil the soil is dead soil dead dirt that um, you, you aren't getting the nutrition you need the micro um, organisms and the nutrients that are in 
you know, need to be in the food and need to be in the soil that's for so, it to work. That's so true, Patria. I'm just about, we're just going to take a time out here. I just wanted to point out, you know, if you, that really hits home when you go to a place like Europe. I was in Greece last year and, and, and had it, bought a tomato at a roadside stand. You bite into a tomato and for the first time you taste what a tomato is supposed to taste like. That tells you all you need to know about what's going on here uh, in terms of uh, agriculture, not only in the United States, but here in Canada. Patria, uh, Patrick is with us. Her first, uh, her, fr- her directorial debut, her latest, uh, sorry, a director producer, her latest film is American Empire, an act of collective madness. Back with more of our conversation when The Conspiracy Show continues after this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We're back with Patria Patrick. The film is American Empire, an act of collective madness. Uh, how can people see this film? Well, we are just having our um, debut in Los Angeles, This uh, actually starting tomorrow, and it'll play for a week here, and then we go to New York and play for a week, and we um, just are getting a couple bites right now. I've got a few meetings today on some distribution deals, so we, we are still open to that. We haven't really signed anything yet, but... We want to get it out on in Netflix and to the uh, biggest audience that we can. So we are screening it at the Limley in Los Angeles, and pretty exciting because you know this film is dealing with some of the things we just talked about. I mean, you don't you don't have to look like you're controlling a society if you do it in a smart way. But we used to have all of our food. And, and food, you know, isn't, isn't the main topic at some, but it is one thing. You you have to have food for your family. You have to have water. These things are necessities of life, and we have to have shelter. And what has transpired over the last, ever since the beginning of the Federal Reserve and the way the monetary system has gone and who gets the loans, it's allowed certain entities to control our food, our water, our very land, um, the grid that we live on, the power, the you know the electricity, the water, the whole way we we you know we are grid slaves, and nobody will talk about that. That is like such a big deal. These people are making so much money off of how we live instead of making some sustainable way that we could live. We're we're on this grid, and and they benefit. So they've got the system down where they control the food and. Um, in the way it's grown, and it's dangerous because people don't see it as control. They go to the market and they see, oh, well, I can buy whatever I want. But whatever they want is only what is available, you see. And so we've taken our main growing that we used to have. We used to have millions of farms here, and it's gone down now that it that land is all taken over by a very few, like like four actually, corporations and it looks like a lot because they have like subsidiary names and things and but it is just a very small group of people now who own the food supply and then that goes into the danger of you know the the genetically modified food now that is um, being offered so and no and then if you look at the real danger the people who are actually growing the food now are the people who used to be the chemical con- companies and still are. Dow Chemical, I mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, these companies that had Agent, you know, made their big money with Agent Orange. And so I, you know, I don't want some chemical company owning 
the food supply of the United States or the world. In fact, I would rather have a, a you know, my the mothers or or the you know the, the nuns or something own the food supply. Farmers, you know, it should be back as farmers, but certainly not people whose main industry is now biotech and uh, chemicals. So it's very, very scary, and we don't as a people see this. People just eat the food. People just, uh, you know, go and buy the products, and, you know, they, they're happy because they got a new DVD player and a new car and a new cell phone, and mm. they just aren't thinking. And, the, you know, our... It's like Howard Beale said in Network, just, you know, I know the news is bad. I don't want to hear it. Leave me in my living room with my steel-belted tires. Uh, Patria Patrick is here, the uh, director, producer of uh, American Empire, an act of collective madness uh, coming to a theater near you, we hope. And um, look look for it. And we'll give you the website as well so you can check out uh, uh, and find out more about the film. And I've also linked up to um, the uh, the trailer. If you go to richardserrett.com and under uh, tonight's show, just uh, click on watch trailer and that'll give you a nice taste uh i mean there's so much here you know you talk about the food you talk about energy you talk about uh the uh, the federal reserve uh i mean there's enough there's enough here for probably you know a hundred films and and, and <laughs> how how does one how does one go about uh, deciding when you have such a huge uh, issue you know what what aspects? I mean, how do you tell this story? It's so complex and so huge. Well, you know, that is uh, one of the things G. Edward Griffin said, like, oh, God, uh, <laughs> how are you going to do this? But that was the journey and the job and the focus of the film. And uh, when I, you actually look at what connects them, all of these things, what connects the Federal Reserve to our food supply? What connects our, our health system and our education system. How are they connected to um, to this? And wh- how does the military-industrial complex fit in? But if you actually pull back the curtain and you just look at who's controlling it all, it makes perfect sense. And it's easy to see. And that's the beauty of this film. And uh, I, I was kind of like, I had... I was so surprised someone hadn't seen this, these brilliant minds out there and just sort of put it together. Yes, you know, you can complicate it, but it's um, it's pretty well put together, and that is the beauty of this film, that it, it was able to do that. And we are, um, it, you know, it didn't come easy. It took five years to do, but God bless. Uh, we get to have that right now, and people are very close to getting you know, able to see this film and uh, really start to understand what's going on. Because, you know, we we started with this country that was made in an effort to get away from an empire. And if we are that now, we are not only in an empire, but we are living in an empire that has the potential to devastate not only our country, but the world. After making this film, did you did you come to any conclusions uh, regarding the, um, I guess, who's ultimately running the show in the United States? And I, what I, I guess what I'm asking is, did you come away from making this film with the conclusion, perhaps, that the president of the United States is not the most powerful man in the world? I think I knew that before I started the film. 
But uh, yeah, it's sad to say because we we right now have a statement in the film, and and you're, you, I'd love you to use this quote if you want to, but that we've we've traded our declaration of independence for dependence. Um, you know, actually, let me see how it goes again. We've traded our declaration of independence for dependence on corporations. Mm. And we've given our Bill of Rights to rights for corporations. And so those CEOs and those people who meet in in these meetings, and uh, we're not invited to any of these meetings. And what's particularly illegal about what goes on in some of these meetings is that they have members of state and government and foreign officials and foreign leaders and CEOs of big multinational corporations, uh, heads of banks, heads of the Federal Reserve, all meeting together at certain places, and they meet once a year. And this is outrageous. And it's not in the news. People don't know about it. And these are the people who are really making decisions that affect our whole food, our safety, our our health uh, where our country's going, the decisions of sustainability that affect our very planet that we live on. All right. And, uh, let me just uh, jump in here, and uh, Patria will take another time. I'll come back, continue to talk about American Empire, an act of collective madness. That subtitle, Collective Madness, uh, suggests, um, well, maybe we're all culpable. We'll find out when we uh, continue our conversation. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. American Empire, an act of collective madness. Director, producer, Patria Patrick is uh, with me. That subtitle again, an act of collective madness. Uh, what does that mean? I mean, I, I referred to that off uh, before the break and suggesting, does that, does that mean that we're all somewhat culpable in this? Well, okay, absolutely. We... We, I somewhat think we're the victims, but we're also the enablers. And really, uh, David Corton talks about that we're in a suicide economy, that this, the way that the money is being spent and, and the big loans and everything that we, I'm not talking about you making a loan on your house or something like that. I'm talking about the multi, you know, multi-billion dollar, trillion dollar loans that these, um, you know, big entities that we don't know who are and even the federal reserve who's lending out this money will not give the names of who these you know people that are getting the money so it's you know and we're now generally the federal reserve isn't really part of the government so they're private banks so why should they tell us maybe but we are thinking everybody thinks that the federal reserve is part of the government so we really need to know this information and where they're taking us, as as you say, it's an act of collective madness because we have no idea how, you know, we know somewhat how our money is being spent, but, you know, with a military. But it's a crazy path. It's a, it's a path that's taking us down um, this unsustainable road where all of our resources are being used up by people who are making short-time profits and they have short-term goals. And so... 
the various resources that we need are being used up, and we have no idea about that. And th- that is what David Corton talks about as a suicide economy. You can't be using up more resources than there are going to be in the very near future. I mean, that is not a smart thing. That's that's why we say it's an act of collective right. madness. Right. Well, it is that type, that type of economic system, I guess, that ultimately leads to, uh, you know, an American empire, the need to uh, to conquer, to control, um, um, and create client states overseas, which is what we're seeing uh, right now, uh, and perhaps part of the, the underlying reason for the so-called Arab Spring is... Again, the American empire deciding they need regime change in certain countries, so perhaps they orchestrated uh, a part of this, this color revolution. Uh, w- w- talk to me about the, um, the film uh, and, and, and what it has to say about American foreign policy. Oh, that, you know, that is something that most people have no idea what's going on there. And what we're doing is just going over and taking the resources of other countries to put food on our table. Most of our food is imported from Chile and Mexico and China. And, you you know, we don't even know that. We just go to the store and we see it's there and we buy it. But what price are we morally paying? Our food is coming off the backs of other people in other countries who've been taken off their land and their small farming system is gone, partly because a lot of the, you know, the big, Chemical companies came down there and, oh, well, we're going to spray for for drugs. But they just sprayed everything, and they knew they were going to get all the farmland. And now they put those people back that used to work on their farm. Now those people have no farms and have to work for these companies. And it's horrible. And we say, oh, well, it's, you know, now they're making a wage, so they're making some money because they get a dollar a day or two dollars a day, where they used to be able to feed their whole family and have food for all their friends and live a very good life. Now they're taking off their farms to go work for some big corporate company that um, is getting food for us in America. Our coffee, our bananas, our mangoes, our all of our, you know, our beans, all this, you know, co- commodities. Uh, this, you know, food down there now is turned into a commodity, and this is wrong. And if we knew this as a people, we would stop buying that food, and we'd start insisting our food was grown here, back again in our own country. And that would mean we have to stop making our dirt dead dirt so that we actually could grow food here again. Because we here in America are facing um, what we had in the 1930s when um, the soil was so misused. And our dirt is just blowing away. There is very little topsoil. And the places where the monoculture has come now, the, the problem is even worse than, and, and we're doing this in other countries too, so it's, you know, this is happening there. We're ruining the soil with these chemicals. And so deplete, just over, depleted uranium? Well, that's just ruining, yeah, that's ruining everything. You know, you can't grow food where depleted uranium is in that area. You, you know, you can't even really be in that area and not come down with uh, definite definitive um, diseases and problems coming from that. But then to go ahead and grow food and try to use that soil, it's wrong. And our country, you know, we're leading the way in in these uh, 
unsustainable um, circumstances. And you know, they just they these people are not looking at the what is going to happen when we do this. They're just, as I said earlier, looking for short-term profits. And we, as a people, have accountability when we buy those products, when we support them. You know, whether we need to know where our products are coming from, who made them, who grew them. And what they mean, you know, another interesting thing, too, we don't even look at it, but if we look at all the clothes we wear, mostly our cotton, and that is the most heavily sprayed crop in all the world because, and, and, and we're just destroying other countries with all this chemical spray because they don't need, nobody eats the cotton, so they don't have to worry about what, you know, how much they dump on there, so it's just like, Killing the people who are working in the fields, killing the fields, killing the soil. Uh, the whole, the whole way that these uh, corporations are attacking things are not thinking about the future sustainability, health of the people, the, the real economy of our nation's resource, other nations' resources, and we, we are culpable. We we've got to. That's why I made this film so we could see how we can stop buying into our own extinction. All right, let's uh, take one more time out, come back, and finish up our conversation with Patria Patrick, filmmaker. The the, uh, the latest film from Patria is An American Empire: An Act of Collective Madness. Here on the Conspiracy Show, my, my name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We're back with Patria Patrick, filmmaker, an American empire, an act of collective madness. If uh, if people want to learn more about the film, if they want to see the trailer, uh, direct us to a website, Patria. Oh, actually, it's uh, www, and then it's American Empire, the documentary, all one word. And that website hopefully is up now, and it's... Uh, then we're also on Facebook, and I'd love everybody to yeah come give us some hits on Facebook and give us some hits on our trailer. Uh, amazingly, we got us over a thousand hits on our trailer just uh, in the last two days. So I I think people are wanting this information. People are hungry for this information. People, um, <clears throat> you know, that has a few people that we screened the film for said this is the most important film they've ever seen, and it changed their life. Uh, and really. We we can feel so empowered if we have some information to work with. And that is their strength, Richard, is they keep us uninformed and the media is not saying anything about these critical issues. And the only way I've seen that we've really gotten any information in the last 10 years is through documentaries. And I know that people can't watch every documentary. I can't watch every documentary. That's why I made this one. I figure if you're going to see one film that means something that's going to make a difference, see this one. And then you can go off and see all the other ones, too. But it's critical that word gets out there. We have to spread the word, see this film, and um, so we can do something about it. Is it too late to change things at the, at the, at the ballot box? Because when I look at the U.S. electoral system, uh, I mean, it's it seems to me that it's that it's based upon continuity, that the the owners of the system, the unelected oligarchs, uh, want continuity. So we have you have this illusion of choice, 
but whether you get uh, Barack Obama, uh, who's advocating change, or whether you're getting uh, Mitt Romney or a Republican, ultimately you're, you're, you end up getting the same foreign policy. You get the same, essentially the same domestic policy. They, you know, they, they make a big deal about uh, uh, are they going to close the, the tax loopholes or are they going to, you know, are they going to increase taxes for the rich? It, it amounts to the same thing. So really there's no fundamental difference between to the two parties. Is it too late to change things at the ballot box? I feel yes. Sadly to say, it doesn't really matter which way you vote. Uh, I think you have to look now a different way at thinking out of the box. And definitely Wall Street owns this country and, you know, those entities like that. And, who you know, who's really running Washington is, you know, the major financiers. And, you know, it looks all great to go waving the flag around. And believe me, there's no one more patriotic than I am. But I just don't – I feel that we have – to go back to community, we have to look back at people in um, that you know put together the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and really read those documents and see what our rights are because we're just giving them away because we're scared. We're you know even the Occupy movements people were scared to come out and so you know we look back at some of the old statements um that if you want to remain the slaves of the bankers and and pay for the cost of your own slavery. Let them continue to create the money and cr- control the nation's credit. That quote was uh, said by Joseph Stamp many, many years ago. And they, you know, back in the 1920s, they understood this problem that money can buy votes and uh, money can rule the nation. And if we are free thinking people and we think we are free, we ought to be then that. It just, uh, it, I think. You know, running around and thinking we're free is is ludicrous when we have so much going against us, but yet we still do have the freedom and we still have the choice. And it's our future, our children's future, and our generations to come future. And we have this moment in time to correct that. And the, if we don't do it, if we don't do it now, it time is lost. The definition of totalitarianism, uh, or or even f- you know fascism, really fascism, is is uh, uh, a, a country that is run by and for the corporations. So, is the United States essentially a a fascist totalitarian country? <laughs> I really want to put me on the spot there. I think uh, it's a it's a uh, monetary you know controlled country and it's the same thing it's you know we don't, we the people are supposed to be running the country we pay the taxes for the people if i am paying someone's salary to go and say my my side my viewpoint you know that i i don't want my country in wars or i you know i want better schools or these things that's what the person that we've hired in our um district and then in our uh, bigger bigger seats, even our judicial area, areas, um, for our governors, our senators, on up to the presidents, these people are speaking our voice. They are hired from from our tax money, and they are supposed to do our bidding. And now that's been turned upside down. So what you call it, call it what you may. It is wrong. It is not living. It is not helping us 
and furthering us as American citizens to be living under the rights of the Constitution and the Bill, the Bill of Rights and our Declaration of Independence. Uh, as I say, we're just now controlled by corporate entities. And um, I don't know if you've seen our poster, but it it's an iconic poster. It says it all. We have the Statue of Liberty, and she's holding up the globe now. Instead of the torch of freedom, she's holding up a globe that has corporate logos all over the uh, land masses, all, all over the continents. It's an iconic statement. And this is what we must get back to um, to a community value. And that's the real start that I see, that uh, get people to get on Facebook and, and go to American Empire and hit likes on it and start understanding how they can be empowered. Everybody that we interview in this film are just fantastic. They have uh, tools called books that people still can read. And uh, they they can uh, be so empowered and informed. And these issues are actually amazing. And it, it's great reading. And the saddest thing, Richard, is none of this information are you going to ever have in the schools. They don't teach about the Federal Reserve mm-hmm. in schools. They don't teach about the, the corporations, the secret entities, and what's really going on. And we need this curtain pulled back in a big way. And right now, time is of the essence. Well, you mentioned education. You mentioned education, Patria. And a number of years ago, uh, I interviewed Charlotte Iserbit, uh, who wrote a book called The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America. And she worked at the uh, uh, the Department of Education under Ronald Reagan and became a whistleblower. Um, and it's it's it's. It's fascinating to see what's happened to the U.S. education, public education, in any event, and and um, it's almost they throw money at it just enough to keep the patient alive. It's almost like triage, uh, and the same thing is going on up here in Canada. Uh, I had to pull my children. I, I, I will not put them in public education. I mean, I think it it, it it could be an important institution, but it's not any longer. And then it just dawned on me that they don't. They don't need to put money into education. They don't want to because you don't have to be educated to stack boxes for Walmart. And that's where we're going. But also, that's true. But even people that have higher jobs, like I've spoken to friends of mine that, you know, make 2500 uh, you know, dollars a week, you know, and they got, you know, the point is that we're being trained in our schools. So the more money you make, the more of an economic slave you actually are, because the one top, the one percent, they're they're not working for their money. They they're just adding, you know, they're fiddling through other other ways. Their money comes a different way. But we are trained here what um, the goals and directions of our country should be, or sustainability, or resources. I mean, sure, we'd learn a little bit about some of this, but not much. We're we're trained to be um, educated to fit into the system, the grid system, the working system, the tax-paying system. That's very and true. And if we if we step out of that box or step off that sidewalk, we are put in our place, and people are frightened, and they don't want to ask these questions. But the thing that this film has done for you, it's asked the question so that you don't have to feel like you have to be the one you know it's it's done for you and we need to be uh, aware of how this works and that um, we are passing on to our children 
this horrible debt and the same horrible system, and it will only get worse. That's why we, time is of the essence. If the people in control nail down the last few nails, that coffin will be sealed and buried, and we can't come back from that. If certain resources are taken over and destroyed, there's no coming back from that, and that is the frightening thing. So you know, we we have time, but we have to get together as people and and get in um, with our communities and understand what to do. How do we move forward? An American Empire, an act of collective madness. Uh, that's that's a good place to start. Watch the film and uh, a very important film with a, a, a very important message perhaps the most important message uh, as we uh, sit here at the crossroads in uh, in our collective uh, history uh, and and one day I suspect you know people will look back on this film uh, an American empire the same way they look back at uh, the importance of uh, G Edward Griffin's a creature from Jekyll Island and John Perkins confessions of an economic hitman so uh, congratulations uh, on, a, on a job well done Patria I appreciate it thank you and may we succeed Thank you very much. Bye. Bye-bye. And once again, the film is American Empire, an act of collective madness, and I hope to catch a screening while I'm here in Los Angeles. So look for it. I think it's an important uh, film, and I think it's important that you see it. In the meantime, why don't you send me a hello on twitter.com slash Richard Serrett, and of course, your portal to The Conspiracy Show, the website, richardserrett.com. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Hey, welcome aboard. Merry Christmas and uh, Kala Christuyana to my, my uh, Greek listeners and friends and family. I hope you're... Um, Having a wonderful Christmas break, and I wish you the very, very best for the season. Of course, we have uh, two more shows uh, left before the end of the year. Uh, next week, my good friend Victor Vigiani will be in the air chair. Uh, I will uh, remain in L.A., as I am tonight, actually, uh, uh, taping more interviews for Season 3 of the uh, Conspiracy Show television program. Uh, so Victor will be here next week with a special holiday-themed uh, version of the Conspiracy Show. Hope you're along for that one. Uh, but tonight, uh, we have an interesting program for you, and I'll get to that in just a moment. Just, I uh, just wanted to share this with you. My little guy, North... Uh, my twins, six years old. This is a big Christmas for them. They're very aware, of course. And uh, uh, in our house, it's St. Nicholas, not Santa Claus, but we use them interchangeably. Anyway, North, uh, we asked him, what would you like from St. Nicholas? And he said, a baby alive. And I know maybe some of the dads out there are saying, oh, I don't know if I'd get my son a baby, uh, a doll. But, uh, you know, you may recall, these, these, these dolls have been around a lot of years. They wet, and they drink, and they cry, and they eat, and you take care of them. And, uh, you know, you change their diaper, and you give them a bottle. And, and North is a very nurturing, affectionate little guy. And um, I have no problem with it. I'll be perfectly upfront. I have no problem with it. If that's what, what, what he wants, then he's getting a baby alive under the tree, by golly. Uh, bless his heart. Zachary, on the other hand, I was very impressed with young Zachary. Uh we asked him, and he actually got a phone call. We arranged for a special phone call from St. Nicholas. North was able to go uh, to a, a Christmas brunch at his school and, and visit with St. Nicholas. 
uh, I had an in with St. Nicholas and he called Zachary at home who was sick and Zachary was asked by St. Nicholas, what would you like? Very impressed. Zachary said, St. Nicholas, whatever you bring me is just fine. I tell you, my heart melted. What a kid. Both of them delicious and it's a great time of year and I'm hoping, I hope you enjoy, are enjoying your family as well this holiday season. Uh, let me run some headlines f- uh, by you. Signs of an emerging police state. Oceans in peril. Fukushima nuclear disaster worse than anticipated. FBI agents responsible for majority of terrorist plots in the United States. First Federal Reserve audit reveals trillions loaned to major banks. Small network of corporations run the global economy. If you're sitting there scratching your head saying, hey, I didn't read about this in the newspaper, I didn't see this on uh, any of the major networks or CNN or CBC, that's because these stories top Project Censored's list of the most censored news stories of 2012. Mickey Huff is the director of Project Censored and is on the board of directors for the Media Freedom Foundation. He's currently professor of social science and history at Diablo Valley College in the San Francisco Bay Area, where he is co-chair of the history department. Huff is co-host with former Project Censored director Dr. Peter Phillips of the Project Censored show. The program airs weekly as part of the morning mix on the Pacifica's KF, or sorry, KPFA Free Speech Radio in Berkeley, California, and rebroadcasts on several stations including NoLiesRadio.org and the Progressive Radio Network out of New York City. Mickey Huff, a pleasure to have you aboard here on The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on the program. For those not in the know, what is Project Censored? What is your mission? Well, our mission is to uh, really support a truly independent and free press by heralding those independent journalists that really write the stories that the public need to know about and get the facts out transparently sourced to the public about the things that matter most, things that have actually been sort of taken over in many cases by the, the corporate media, which masquerades under the title mainstream media, which is a great achievement of propaganda for the plutocracy that owns the public airwaves here has co-opted the public airwaves because 90% uh, of the media in the United States, the news media, is owned for profit privately by six corporations. And these uh, filter information in a way that is beneficial to their shareholders, their advertisers. They rely on official sources. They operate under objectivity biases. So these are all real problems. And what we really try to do is to go back to old, uh, I don't don't necessarily mean old-fashioned, but really simplistic investigative journalism, report the issues, find the facts, report them to the people, find out what the the prevailing uh, perspectives happen to be about the particular issues, and then go out and seek even further. What are some things that might be missing? In other words, we treat this as an ongoing uh, vernacular narrative, a people's narrative, not a top-down managed news structure. So what Project Censor tries to do is uncensor these underreported stories to give people the kind of information they need to meaningfully function in a purportedly democratic republic. And and every year you release your top censored stories list, and we'll get into some of those in a a moment. But let me ask you, uh, what what has happened to uh, investigative uh, journalism? Because you and I were sort of talking uh, off air about the meaning of certain words and how conspiracy is now a loaded uh, loaded word. Uh, I would contend that if, um, if... 
Uh, Woodward and Bernstein were, were toiling in the, uh, well, they are, but if they were digging up things on, on uh, you know, the, the president these days, if they were to report on Watergate in 2012, they'd be accused of being conspiracy theorists and laughed out of the room. That's correct. And in fact, it's interesting to bring up Woodward and Bernstein in particular. Um, Bernstein wrote a really, I think, a brilliant historical, now historical essay in 1977 on this issue of conspiracy theorists and the term. And, and the term hatched itself in our contemporary, uh, more contemporary history uh, out of the Central Intelligence Agency. And it was used as a meme floating through newsrooms that the CIA had great influence in, based on their op- Operation Mockingbird programs infiltrating newsrooms to control the Cold War narrative. And uh, anybody that challenged the JFK rulings was, uh, I'm sorry, the JFK assassination, the Warren Commission assassination, um, they were to be referred to as conspiracy theorists. So it was supposed to discredit them a priori. Um, In other words, before you even get into a discussion, uh, Jay Epstein had a book at the time uh, in the late 60s that was really challenging the, the narrative of the Warren Commission and the lone gunman theory. So the CIA really helped float this out as a way of discrediting even academic and investigative journalists, people that were really just asking key questions that ought to be asked in a free society, supposedly free society. And so that term, unfortunately, still is with us. And anybody that wants to investigate um, uh, controversial events, 9-11, election fraud, and so on, um, it, it often is then cast as, well, they must be conspiracy theorists, and we shouldn't pay any attention to these loonies. Unfortunately, doing the research is how we uncover crimes, state crimes, corporate crimes against democracy and against the people. So if you can somehow have an institutional subterfuge uh, whereby these investigations can't even get off the ground, it really protects the powerful uh, from concealing things uh, from the public that the public may not approve of. Uh, I want, let's uh, get into some of these um, these top censored stories of, of, of 2012. And, and I want to begin with one that, that um, left me gobsmacked, quite frankly. Uh, and that is, although I mean, I've always suspected uh, there may be something to this, but you seem to have, um, you know, really shone a light on this. And that is that the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, is responsible for most of the terrorist plots inside the United States. Tell me about that story. Well, this story is number four on the list, and it's actually not a new story, uh, to be honest. Uh, It actually stems from, if you go back to the 1950s and 60s, the FBI had a program called the Counterintelligence Program, otherwise known as COINTELPRO. Uh, this is matter of fact. These came out, these facts came out in the um, Church Committee hearings in the Senate in the 1970s after Watergate, where there was this brief period of some openness and research about things going on under Cold War auspices of national security. And after 9-11, we've just seen a continuation of this kind of national security state and police state, which is another one of our big stories. And in this case, the FBI being involved in a majority of terror plots that it then subsequently thwarts, that's a key one. We're talking about uh, upwards of 15,000 people being hired on as informants or infiltrators paid sometimes upwards of $100,000. So think of the budgetary implications for this in terms of appropriations and politicking in Congress as well as the public face of, well, keeping America safe. And what's going on is the FBI are infiltrating uh, groups. They are teaming up with, um, you know, really volatile individuals, in some cases per- making them more volatile, preventing them from finding gainful employment, um, feeding 
feeding them with a lot of paranoiac thoughts and then supplying them with information and eventually material support and potential weapons to carry off uh, what would be referred to as terrorist acts against the public or acts of violence. Um, in Portland, for example, the person that was trying to maybe maybe going to be blowing up part of the downtown square in Portland. You know, this is pretty much the case that happened there. We see this kind of thing happening again in Cleveland with the people in the so-called Occupy movement. In other words, um, and by the way, this was published in Mother Jones magazine. Uh, it's also been reported on RT. Um, so again, th- we, we know that this is going on. We know that this is happening. And the FBI comes out and says, yes, but we're thwarting these plots. So here's the fine line. Are they thwarting plots that would have been hatched anyway? Or are they taking volatile individuals, pushing them so far to the edge and using their resources to make them feel so out of control in their own destiny and their own lives that they must act out in a way uh, that these these informants and FBI operatives are suggesting that they act out. And then, of course, they swoop in at the last minute and prevent them and look like heroes. This is a dangerous game. We see that in the 1993 World Trade Center bombings where the FBI had infiltrated the group and supplied real explosives instead of bogus ones. And that came out in the 95 trial on that issue. So this story, number four, I'm afraid isn't new, but we've seen vast proliferation of it over the past years. And I think the public has a right to know this because there should be a very serious debate going on about national security and people that may be out to harm the public. And unfortunately, sometimes the people that inadvertently harm the public are the very people tasked with protecting it in the first place. The majority of terrorist plots in the United States are hatched by the FBI. You won't hear about that on uh, PBS or Fox, uh, not even on the uh, CBC up here in uh, Canada. But uh, thank the Lord for uh, Project Censored and Mickey Huff, the director of Project Censored, who joins me. More of our conversation on the other side. Stay with us. The Conspiracy Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Mickey Huff is with us, the director of Project Censored, and they've released their top censored stories of 2012. Uh, the, the mission of Project Censored is to teach students and the public about the role of the, pr- uh, of the free press in a free society and to report the news that didn't make the mainstream news and explain why. Uh, another uh, uh, one of the high-ranking stories here on, on this year's list has to do with the New York City police planting drugs on innocent citizens in order to meet arrest quotas. Tell me about that, Mickey. Well, it's a problematic series of stories going on under the guise of the stop and frisk policy that's gained a lot of attention out of New York and has gained significant resistance um, over the last year or so. Um, going back through October of 2011, uh, a former NY Police Department narcotic detective testified that he regularly saw this kind of thing going on during the stop and frisk program, which allows the police to stop people for virtually any reason. And just see what they're up to. Um, And of course, there are millions of dollars invested here to try to arrest suspects for even possessing minimal amounts of, say, marijuana. Um, And the arrest cost one or two thousand dollars a piece. This was written about in the Gothamist. Uh, That's out of um, New York. It's also something that's on alternet.org. Jesse Levine wrote about this. But there have been even more people talking about this. It's been covered vastly in Revolution newspaper, certainly uh, people like uh, Carl Dix and even um, 
Cornell West went on a national speaking tour trying to call attention to this kind of process. And then what the, what the police department does is they try to petition for grants and more, more funding to basically show that they're being tough on crime. And so they go out under this policy and they start stopping people. And unfortunately, another component of this is that mo- most of the people that are ensnared in this stop and frisk are people of color, are young men of color. So there is a disproportionate number of people that are Hispanic or African-American, uh, Latino, that are, that are being stopped and and, and this is, again, part of a racial profiling issue. And then they go, the police department go back to their bureaucracies and show these high-rest numbers and these quotas they're supposed to fill so they can then ask for more taxpayer money to go out and stop and frisk people randomly, finding often very minor infractions or, or nonviolent type offenses. So we think, again, that people have a right to know this, given that it's a public affair, it's about public safety, it's happening, again, in big, major cities like New York City. It's being replicated in other parts of the United States. States. And again, at Project Censored, our real mission is to make sure that people have the facts and have the knowledge uh, about the key things happening in, in, in our times so that they can act intelligently about it. And if the people don't believe that this is a wise or judicious use of resources or that it is not a component of a socially just society where people are not being treated equally and people's liberties are being violated, then people should act and people should say, this stops. This will not happen in our name and it will not happen with our money. There are better ways to provide safety and security to our communities rather than this method of harassment and stop and frisk. Mickey Huff is with us from Project Censored, the website www.projectcensored.org. Do you have friends that work in the mainstream media as journalists? Yeah, we, we know many people in both independent and corporate media. So we know people that have – we actually know some people that who, uh, whom have, they have defected from corporate media. Christina Borgeson springs to mind immediately as a great journalist that's worked with CBS, Dan Rather, and many others that's, you know, really, really had a hard time over the years because she wanted to publish stories that were very controversial, though factually supported. Um, she's got a couple of really great books. Feet to the Fire is one. Um, and it's full of these type of industry insiders in – that have come forward and said, look, I had this, I was censored on a regular basis. Um, These kind of things really do happen. Now, understandably, there are people in the corporate media that see us as attacking them. Uh, But our our real, the genesis of the project is not about attacking journalism. It's about making it more in line with the principles of a free press. As George Seldes said in the 20th century, mid-20th century, the job of journalism is to tell people what's really going on. And we can't do that when we have all these other pressures and when we have these other terms and conspiracy theories and people are afraid to talk about these issues. And we want to really kind of reclaim all of this and say, look, what we want is open narration. We want factual sources that are transparently cited. Uh, We want a whole host of these things to be part of a natural process of informing the public. So when we remind people in the corporate media of this and we nudge them about this, um, it's not to say just that you're failing and part of the problem. It's to say, you've got a lot of resources here, and if you would just buck some of the influences that are going on to prevent you from doing this, we could all work on this together for the betterment of humanity. And in the case of some of these stories, and we're talking about global warming and, and, and climate problems, I mean, we're talking about humanity. We're not just talking about nation states. We're not just talking about private interests. We're talking about all of us. And I'd hope that at some juncture, people in the corporate media, as Ralph Nader once said, uh, that they, they would have 
stick censored copies of their book, the censored journal, to their their newsroom. So instead of relying on things coming from the newswire on slow news days, they pick up this book and say, well, what are people already doing that that need lifted up? They need more megaphone. They need this story needs more life to it. And I think that if people maybe would do that kind of a thing, eventually Project Censored would be not needed anymore. And frankly, that would suit me fine uh, because that would mean we were much more along our way to a path of a more just society. Uh, I often uh, uh, am asked to uh, represent the conspiracy theory, quote unquote, whatever that means, when I'm uh, asked to go on to the mainstream media on a, on a, a television show or a radio show uh, and where I'm sort of seen as some sort of a, um, an, you know, an amusement uh, mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, I'm, I'm one of uh, one of those conspiracy nutters. Uh, and they ask Because me, you dare to ask questions and think critically and independently for yourself is what the translation really is. There you go. Uh, but I'm asked, you know, to explain this phenomena and, I, uh, you know, why the rise in conspiracy theories. And I say, because you aren't doing your job. And so mm-hmm. people are are voting with their feet, running away from mainstream newspapers, television, and radio, uh, and they're finding this information on the internet, and, and unfortunately, there is a lot of misinformation out there, and, and uh, people have sometimes difficulty separating the wheat from the chaff, but but I turn it around, and, 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 and what's given rise to this conspiracy c- uh, community or, or, or subterranean culture, as some like to, 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 to call it, it's, it's their fault. It's the mainstream media's fault. Well, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean someone's not out to get you, right? Exactly. I mean, it, in other words, makes too light of this. I mean, I teach critical thinking courses in college and uh, impact of media propaganda on historical interpretation and so on. And I, I do this all the time um, where I do speak on issues of 9-11 and so forth. But I, I, I do so on the basis of factual research. I do so on the basis of what is out there. And as you pointed out, what are the, the reason that there are so many potentially outlandish theories and views is because because the official interpretations are ludicrous. They are not backed by factual evidence in some cases. They propose wild hypotheses that are never proven while then accusing others of the same thing. And then the debate is stifled and there's no open discourse about it. What we're suggesting at Project Censored is simply let's have these debates. Peter Phillips and I have had open debates. We had a national show on Pacifica KPFA radio on the 10th anniversary of 9-11 talking about the Twin Towers and Building 7 with Richard Gage and architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth and physicists at UC Berkeley that disagreed and someone from Reason and Skeptic Magazine because we believe the public has a right to not hear name-calling and straw-person tactics and red-herring fallacies. They have a right to hear legitimate disagreements so that we can understand complicated matters. Unfortunately, most official narrative government investigations serve as obfuscation such that maybe we will never know what happened in some of these very complicated or uh, controversial events, and I think that's really part of our problem. And by trying to wake people up to the significance of being a critical thinker, an independent thinker. Remember, Emma Goldman once said that being an independent thinker was the most unpardonable sin in our society. It is something that's uh, not looked upon uh, politely in public or mainly political culture, because it means that it's harder to fool people. And once people are really thinking more on their own, we also need to connect this critical thinking component to media literacy. We live in a society saturated by media messaging and bombarded by 
ubiquitous messages from various places. We need to be media literate such that we understand, well, what is this source trying to tell me? What are the funders trying to get me to believe? What are they trying to distract me with? We do a whole chapter on junk food news every year about the Kardashians and Britney Spears and, you know, this kind of Twinkies for the brain story about what are we paying attention to instead of paying attention to what's important? Like over the last weekend, why are we paying attention to this South Korean rapper, Psy, who uh, some people are being uh, very uh, upset about him making negative statements about U.S. foreign policy, when the same weekend we have the U.S. military and the Pentagon saying that they are going to have to try to rationalize the killing of children uh, in the Middle East because they're part of terrorist plots as well. I mean, we should be talking about what, what, at what point is our culture descended such to the degree to which that we're talking about the legitimate targeting and killing of children mm, in societies. Yeah. Yeah. Rather, we're obsessed with these other nonsensical affairs. And I think that, again, we need more open, transparent type of platforms. And kind of just what you said, exactly the thing that I think you're doing, that you're trying to accomplish, is you're really just trying to get people to have sober, honest, respectful dialogue about the things that matter most in our world. Number 12 on the top censored stories of 2012 is the uh, collaboration of the Obama administration with al-Qaeda in in Syria. Now, I, I, from the beginning, I have long suspected that this was this was not a, a popular uprising, a continuation of the Arab Spring. This was orchestrated. Uh, this is an outside insurgents, uh, uh, insurgency, uh, who have targeted Assad. Uh, they want him out. They want regime change in Syria. NATO does, and uh, that's what this is all about. But. But tell me a little bit more about uh, this collaboration with al-Qaeda. Well, you know, this goes way, uh, back, well, yeah, obviously, some ways. You go back to Osama bin Laden and uh, Mojahedin and the U.S. Cold War policies in Afghanistan, thwarting the Soviet Union and so on. And al-Qaeda means literally the base or the network. And so over the years, while we were simultaneously looking for a bin Laden or targeting one al-Qaeda group, we were working with al-Qaeda forces in other parts of the world. Clinton did it in Yugoslavia. Uh, we've done it in Afghanistan um, while we're paying parts of the Taliban and al-Qaeda forces not to attack U.S. interests and so forth. Uh, it's highly likely that this was going on in Libya, and here we see it happening again in Syria. has the same kind of fingerprints, all under the rubric of Arab Spring, because there are legitimate pro-democratic, anti-Assad or anti-Qaddafi movements afoot in, in these countries. But it is also the case that the United States and Britain have been funding, arming, NATO has been in here funding and arming people and making it look like it's a popular uprising only, like a simple black and white issue, when in fact NATO is really trying to exert its influence there, and the United States has long wanted to oust Gaddafi and long wanted to get rid of Assad. That's not to suggest that Gaddafi and Assad didn't have their own issues or problems, but the way that this issue is covered, again, is it's very black and white when it's actually very complicated. And even in the progressive press, even in the, the, the so-called left press in the United States, Amy Goodman, Democracy Now!, who does wonderful work much of the time, she's a valuable asset to free speech and free press movements. Um, they kind of parroted the NATO lines on these issues of Libya and Syria, and whereas Michel Chosadovsky out of Ottawa, Global Research, um, Eric Margolis out of Information Clearinghouse, um, I think Global Research has really been on the front of this, Finian Cunningham, uh, Stephen Lenman. These people 
people have really been showing the other side of this story. And the danger is is that when you show the other side, people then suddenly jump in and say, well, because the Russians are into, uh, backing Assad, you're pro-Putin, you're pro-dictator. And look, that's not going on here. Project Censored is not pro-dictatorship. Neither is Michelle Chosodovsky or Lenin or any of the people that are pointing out these problems. But again, now we're supposedly some kind of conspiracy theorist that, oh, the U.S. is going in there to destabilize it. Well, guess what? Over the course of the, the 20th century, the United States exactly did that in dozens of countries. Went in, destabilized it, supported local factions, made it look like a local uprising, fed off of some of the local movements and discontentment were there, and then controlled the governments thereafter. We're certainly doing that now in Afghanistan under Karzai, who was a representative of Unical Oil trying to get to the Caspian Sea oil reserves, negotiating with the Taliban under Clinton in 1998. You know, we could go on and on and on about the history of this. So the frame ought be, based on uh, consensus historiography, is that, yes, the United States does act this way and has acted this way, and what we should do is be trying to figure out what's best for the Syrian people. What are the Syrian people really dealing with here, and are we actually helping the situation, or are we exacerbating the situation? And I love also how this often operates under the Orwellian rubric of humanitarian intervention. You know what? The Syrians, the Libyans, they don't ask what bombs are blowing up their villages and their children, whether they're NATO bombs, Assad bombs, Gaddafi bombs, they're bombs. Their countries are being turned into war zones for profit and being turned into it for a political uh, expedience. And I think that that should be part of the narrative that we look at when we look at this extension of Cold War policies under the guise of the war on terror. Yeah, interesting, Mickey. We'll take a time out and we'll come back and finish up here. But uh, I, th- I thought it was interesting when uh, President Obama was uh, talking about uh, uh, the recent uh, uh, violence in uh, Israel and, and the Gaza, the Palestinians in, in the Gaza Strip. And uh, when, when shells were raining down uh, on Israel, the, the president said no other country on earth would tolerate this sort of thing. Right. And yet here we have the Americans with their drone uh, their drone attacks in Pakistan and so forth. It's, uh, it, it is Orwellian. It's, it's, it's riveting hypocrisy. And it's in your face. It's not even as though there are efforts to cover it up. It's if, if anybody pays a whit of attention and thinks independently on their own, the things that you just said become painfully obvious. All right. We'll take a time out and uh, continue our conversation on the other, to- other side with Mickey Huff, director of Project Censored, right here on The Conspiracy Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We're back with Mickey Huff, director of Project Censor. Just a few moments to remain. Mickey, appreciate your time. Uh, the, the, um, the White House, the press corps, their credentials are, from what I understand, issued and can be taken away by uh, the Secret Service. Uh, and so, uh, not surprisingly, we never get those tough, um, uh, obvious uh, questions coming from the White House press gallery. Uh, certainly, since you know uh, Helen Thomas was unceremoniously uh, removed, do you see that the way that the the White House press corps is 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 stifled as as one of the the main problems with with journalism in America? I think that you're really on to something there. In fact, I discussed it. I discussed it in uh, our book this past uh, this past year, and I I discussed it in a um, in a chapter on junk food news and news abuse. And I actually looked back to Daniel Borston. He's an historian uh, from the 1960s, and 
uh, Borston wrote a book called um, The Image, A Guide to Pseudo-Events in American History. And these press conferences that, you just, that you're just talking about here, this is a precise example of a pseudo-event. It's manufactured, it's controlled, it's framed, and there are certain things that fall outside of the frame. And everybody knows who's in the press pool the kinds of questions you can and can't ask. So there doesn't have to be an overt form of censorship, per se, that's visible from the outside. And um, I think that that's a really important thing that people ought to remember, is that we're dealing with framed information, managed information, controlled information. And uh, again, I can't recommend people going back and rereading Borston's book Enough from 1962, again called The Image, A Guide to Pseudo-Events in American History, uh, because it, it really touches on the kind of society that we've become. It's odd sometimes for historians to be seen as so prescient. But um, I do want to briefly, at least if I could, point out something, um, something that, something that Borston said that I think has just become more and more true over the last half century. Borston wrote, we expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars that are spacious, luxurious cars that are economical. We expect to be rich and charitable, powerful and merciful, active and reflective kind and competitive. We're ruled by extravagant expectations, by harboring, nourishing, and ever enlarging our extravagant expectations. We create the demand for the illusions with which we deceive ourselves and which we pay others to make to deceive us. That's basically what we've described in a nutshell, whether it's this press corps or the nightly news or the corporate media frame. We, as Neil Postman said at NYU, we're the uh, best entertained, least informed society in the modern world. He said that over 20 years ago. And sadly, I think that's truer today than ever. Amusing ourselves to death. Indeed. Mickey, give, uh, give my listeners an, uh, an assignment. What, what should they do if they're concerned about uh, the censorship of news stories uh, throughout North America? Well, one thing they could do is go to our website, projectcensored.org, where we have all of our stories cataloged back to our founding in 1976. And you can uh, research stories. You can nominate stories and send them to us. If you're an, an educator and you teach at a college, university, and so on, you can offer your skills and student researchers to become more media literate and help us compile our book every year. So the assignment is go take a look at the website, take a look at the investigative research and all the things that we're doing, and all all the like-minded media democracy organizations with whom we work and pick something in the new year to become part of and be part of the solution to fight censorship rather than just decry it or to ignore it or pretend that there are other things to deal with. No matter what your number one issue or concern is, the number two issue has to really be how do we get information out? How do we help us, uh, our society become more informed so that we can make better decisions about where we're going as a people? And I say, again, one of the big things to do is to help fight media censorship help promote media democracy, and really, really uh, encourage a truly free press. Mickey, appreciate your time. Merry Christmas. Same to you. Thanks so much for having me on. And again, we'd be delighted to come back anytime. Let's make it a yearly event, at least. Mickey Huff, director of Project Censored. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. 
Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. Uh, Victor Vigiani, my good friend from Zeland News Network, will be sitting in the air chair uh, next week offering up a special uh, holiday season version of The Conspiracy Show. And again, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah to uh, all my listeners. Now, have a listen to this, and you tell me, is this something to kill yourself over? And we have been told that this phone number is the hospital mm. where Kate Middleton is currently staying. We can't yeah. just ring up and go, hi, it's MC and Mel from the Summer 30. Can we chat to Kate? Hang up. Not going to happen. Yeah. You are going to be the queen. This is awesome. I'm going to be Prince Charles. You could be the, the, the royal corgis, if, if you're okay <laughs> with that. Hello, good morning. King Edward yeah, could I please speak to Kate, please, my granddaughter? Oh, yes, just hold on. Um... Thank you. What about this then? Kate, my darling, are you there? Um, good morning, Mum. This is the uh, nurse speaking. How may I help you? Hello, I'm just after my granddaughter, Kate. I want to see how her little tummy bug is going. Mummy! She's sleeping at the moment, Mommy. and she Mommy. has had an uneventful night. Um, and, and sleep is good for her so as, as we speak. She's been getting some fluids to rehydrate her because she was quite dehydrated when she came in. Um, but she, she's stable at the moment. Okay, I'll, I'll just feed my little corgis then. Um, so what, when is a good time to come and visit her? Because I'm the queen, so I need a lift down there. A prince, Charles! Mummy, is everything uh, okay? Oh, wait, my Charles, when can you take me to the hospital, Charles? When, when will it be all right to come down and see her? Maybe, maybe in the morning or something, if that's okay. I would suggest that any time after nine o'clock would be suitable because the doctor will be in in the morning. Okay. And we'll just be getting her freshened up in the morning. Uh, I would think any time after nine. Wonderful. And is, is Wills, is Wills still there? Has he gone home? I haven't spoken to him yet. He went home at about half past nine last, no, actually probably about nine o'clock last oh, night. Okay. Lovely. But they're all yes. okay? Everything's all right? Yes, she, she's, she's quite stable at the moment. She hasn't had any retching with me since I've been on duty. And she has been sleeping on and off. Wonderful. I think it's difficult sleeping in a strange bed as well. Yes, of course. It's hardly the palace, oh, is it? it's nothing like the palace, is it, Charles? No. And when are you going to walk those bloody corgis? Mumsy, I'll go and take the dogs outside. I need to go visit Kate in the morning. My dear, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs> she was giving us real information. When I first heard this tragic story, I, I thought it was very strange, very suspicious. Here we have this 46-year-old nurse, Jacintha Seldana, uh, working at the, uh, the King Edward VII Hospital in London, where Kate Middleton, the Duchess of Cambridge, was being treated for severe morning sickness. She takes this call from these this Australian uh, morning zoo team uh, and is uh, it, it seems like she wasn't even um, duped. She simply passed the call on. She had a, a call, a, a, an inquiry for a patient. So she passed it on to the night nurse. Well, the uh, the night nurse uh, received, received the call thinking, OK, someone wants information about Kate Middleton's condition. So she just said, well, she's she's doing fine. But the woman, the nurse, who took the original call and simply passed it on, is then found hanging in her flat near the hospital. Uh, she apparently was alive at the time, and uh, attempts were made to revive the 46-year-old mother of two. Uh, she died, however, tragically. Um, and uh, she, she said she felt such incredible remorse and guilt over being tricked. I just found this very, very suspicious that anyone would go to that length kill themselves over simply passing on a phone call.
Uh, and uh, someone who shares these suspicions is a, a good friend of the program, of course, our resident media scientist who studied under the great Marshall McLuhan. He's also a noted assassination researcher uh, who has done a lot of research, for example, into the assassination of Princess Diana. Here, Joining us once again is our friend Nelson Thal. Good, good to be here, Richard. So what um, led you to suspect that Jacintha Saldana uh, did not hang herself, that she was perhaps murdered? Well, just, Richard, to start with, it's a, once again an interesting situation. It's a complex case. <clears throat> and what's interesting is right off the bat, we saw so many patterns here as in other uh, covered up suicides which have now been exposed like the Dr. David Kelly UN inspector was supposed to have been suicided and the news that came out was he 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 had killed himself and later on uh, Michael Shrimpton lawyer for MI5 and 6 admitted that uh, that it was a Turkish wet team that was behind the assassination of Dr. Kelly. And this has the same sort of fingerprints right off the bat. Um, you know, Richard, uh, uh, to make a, for the public consumption, you may tell people that uh, the last firewall protection between the wife of the, uh, the, the, the man in line to the throne of England, you may say that the last firewall of protection was an East Indian nurse. But those of us who followed royal security protection know much better about how the real security is put around these people. So for somebody to say that they got through and could get through through uh, a nurse on an, to a night nurse, it, it's a huge, obvious uh, falsehood, and that raises red flags right off the bat. So, Nelson, you believe that she may have been knocked off by uh, MI6 or someone even higher up in, in British security at the behest of, uh, of someone in the royal family? Well, let's just go back, you know... Um, <laughs> It's, but once again, to the to the security and what we're told, the police told us that uh, they don't know the cause of death, but they, on the same breath, said they know it's not a suspicious death. Now, what do you make of that, Richard? Well, it is interesting, and apparently now they're reporting that when she was discovered in her flat, uh, supposedly uh, hanged, she was still alive, uh, which is interesting. But what I don't understand, uh, Nelson, and that, is... And, of course... Princess Diana was also alive when she got out of the car, and instead of a four-minute run in an ambulance, it turned out to be 40 minutes. Right, right. Yeah. I, I get what you're, what you're saying you here. So there's some, some interesting parallels there. But oh, I, what I, I don't understand is, here we have um, this nurse. She's a mother of two. She's found dead days after this Australian radio station duped staff again at London's King Edward VII Hospital into revealing death uh, details of the Duchess of Cambridge's condition. And again, she was being treated, Kate Middleton was, for severe morning sickness. Now, the, Jacintha Saldana, she took the call, but she passed it on to... Uh, a, a, a night nurse who was the one that revealed the details. So why would they target Jacintha Saldana and not the night nurse who revealed the details? You know, Richard, the, the, when you're dealing with monarchs who control and are above the law, then you've got to not necessarily understand whether or not there was a private nurse or even a night nurse. As a matter of fact, since when do these people go to hospitals? 
And you know full well that the queen, she doesn't know how to make a phone call. She doesn't make phone calls. It's too insecure a line. When she wants to speak to people, she they come to her or she has her secret service use walkie-talkie connection to to the multitudes of secret service that would be in the hospital so they don't use telephones and that's the real truth of it so now the police aren't talking about that they're going along with the fact that there were phone calls and hoax calls and this stuff just is more fodder once again for the public isn't it well again so nelson uh, just recap your um, theory as to why this nurse, Jacintha Saldana, was perhaps murdered by, do you think it was MI6? Uh, we don't know who it is, but we just look at the past. As we say, Michael Shrimpton uh, ex explain, expressed, he was the lawyer for MI5 and MI6, and he was on with Sherman Skolnick and uh, talking about the Dr. Kelly suicide and how they suicided him, Richard, right? They suicided him, and and so legal counsels for these intelligence agencies have already talked about this, and uh, that's one of the beauties of the internet that these things get out, and so there's a lot of similarities here. I don't know who did it, of course, and we don't know the motive, but we do know that it's one thing we can say: this is not a suicide. And uh, but the reason the motive the, uh, is we'll have to continue investigating, but it isn't what it's been reported to be. And, and again, you suspect that it was because uh, the, the royal family or MI6 or whomever it was that pulled this off wanted to send a clear message that what you you don't mess with you know the duchess of cambridge or you don't mess with the royal family or or what exactly would be the motive do you, do you no, think it could have been an outside foreign intelligence black op operation against the windsors that uh, went astray that went awry there's lots of possibilities here but it will come out we'll continue to report it on this show because um it's it's there's this is definitely not we're we're told from sources in the intelligence agencies that this is not a suicide and you know the it, richard the, the pattern is going to be interesting to follow and uh, uh, there's a lot of possible motives here well, well we'll definitely keep following up on this but i just want to pick up on that last point you made this may not have been done. This, uh, this, this Jacintha, Jacintha Saldana's murder may not have been done at the behest of the royal family. In fact, you're saying that the Windsors may have been targeted by some other group. Exactly. If you know the way these people live behind castle walls, not for, not for nothing. And um, if you understand the way they've behaved in Africa and other parts of the world, they certainly have made a lot of enemies, and there may have a lot of people come back and want to get them. And uh, if their daughter-in-law, if, uh, if she was in the hospital there, then um, she may have been the target of some sort of a, uh, a black op from a foreign agency that, uh, that they stopped and they want to just cover it up and call it a suicide, not let anybody know that they're under attack from foreign intelligence services. Interesting. Well, you've uh, you certainly piqued our interest, Nelson, and uh, well, I'll leave it to you to stay in touch with your intelligence sources uh, and perhaps we'll get to the bottom of this and we'll certainly hear from you and not the mainstream media on what happened to uh, 46-year-old Jacintha Saldana, again discovered on um, uh, in her her uh, room, uh, staff accommodations near London's King Edward VII Hospital, which was treating Kate Middleton uh, for morning sickness. Nelson, we, thanks for this. I and mean, we've been batting a thousand and we'll continue the record, Richard. All right, my friend. Take care. Bye-bye.
Nelson Thal. And uh, my thanks also to Patria Patrick, the uh, director-producer of American Empire, and also uh, to Mickey Huff, the director of Project Censored. Uh, that's it for me, and um, listen, uh, all the best for the, uh, the Christmas season. Uh, to you and yours, a very Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and a, uh, a Happy New Year. I'll talk to you before 2013 uh, starts, but uh, in the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, and what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.